Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I'm closing off the, uh, this short series we had on this topic of unity in the church. And it's an important topic to me because I think we all want so badly to feel connected to other people. We want so badly to feel like we belong somewhere that what we have here, you know, we use the word family so loosely in the church. For a lot of people, the pain is it doesn't always feel Anything like a real family, it feels like an awkward club. Not for everybody, but for some. If we ever want unity to be more than a word at our church, it's going to take a miraculous supernatural work of God. It's going to take power from God to produce that. I'm drawing from, I've been drawing from the second chapter of the book of Philippians, and this last message is called The Humble King, and it focuses on verses 5 through 11. I want to read those, those verses with you. Here's what they say. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Let me see if this is on. I have no idea how to turn this thing on. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Have you ever been driving home from a wonderful evening out with friends, Christian friends? I, I say that specifically for a reason. And thought these thoughts to yourself on the drive home. I ask because I, I've been thinking these thoughts recently after nights of fellowship. You thought to yourself, wow, that was a really nice evening together. I really enjoy those people. That was so good. But I wonder if it's different in any way than what non-believing people experience when they spend an evening together. In other words, is it possible that what I did just now was spent a wonderful evening with friends who happen to also be Christ followers, but that that dimension of who we are had really no bearing on the way that we interacted with each other. And I don't mean to suggest that every time there's a dinner party, there should be a sermon and a prayer meeting. I'm not talking about religious activity so much as this honest question, 
what makes the difference between just friendship between human beings and Christian fellowship? In other words, is the unity we're meant to experience in the church supposed to look any different substantively than what the world experiences as unity or community? What makes Christian fellowship distinctly Christian? So I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I have so many memories, fond memories of wonderful long evenings spent together with Christian friends, but I've been, I've been really wrestling through what would make a Christian fellowship distinctly Christian. I think that in this passage, Paul begins to give us a clue to at least one answer. And I love the way the NIV translates verse 5. I like the way the ESV translates the rest of that text, which is why I used it. But I really like the way the NIV translates verse 5. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I think what he's saying is one of the keys that makes unity among Christians distinctive from just unity among human beings is that our unity is not based on affinity or kinship. It's based on the fact that together we share a like-mindedness with Jesus Christ. In other words, the primary basis of our, our being together isn't that we like each other, that even if none of us went to church, we'd still be buddies. That could still be true, and that's a fine thing. But that the real basis of our connection to each other is that we all share a common attitude and mindset that first we learned and inherited from Jesus Christ. In other words, what makes us so connected is our connection to the one same Savior. That's what's shaping us, changing us, so that there is, in fact, a discernible difference when we get together with other Christ followers than there is when we just get together with other friends. The unity in the church, then, is built on a like-mindedness with the attitude of Jesus, and the attitude of Jesus most in view in this text is his humility. So in part, I think what we're supposed to learn here is that one of the greatest components to spiritual unity in the church is humility in the hearts of each member. I I believe that without humility, unity among human beings is not really possible. We can have a facsimile of unity, like we like each other a lot. We have fun together. We can have those things. But the kind of unity we're describing, that kind of stuck-together, deep-down connectedness, I don't believe is possible among Christians if there isn't a humility which ultimately comes to us because of our connection to Jesus Christ. Every relationship in our lives is going to experience conflict. Most of them, if if we have them long enough, will experience serious conflict. Sometimes a kind of conflict that feels like we're not going to survive it. But wherever there is humility in a relationship, there is real hope. Even if that humility only exists in one person in that relationship, there is still hope for the relationship as long as humility exists. But where there is no humility, there is no hope for human relationships. You can love your parents, you can love your child But if if on either side there is no real humility, no space for others, no swallowing of pride, no getting out of the way, 
mother and child, father and child will drift apart. You could have such a connection to your lover or to your best friend, to your own flesh and blood brother and sister, but if there is no humility, I guarantee you over time, that relationship will start to die. We have to learn, take hold of what this thing is called humility. And we can't just play at it. It's got to take root in our hearts. Or else, I believe that humility is always just going to be a word for us. I think God knew that we would never find motivation to be humble by looking around at each other. Because the truth is, when we look around at the people who surround us, the greatest temptation is to compete or to be vindicated, to justify ourselves, to hide to elevate. And so he points us to Jesus and says, if you want to learn what humility looks like, I present to you the greatest motivation for humility that I can possibly think of. Jesus, our Savior, was the most humble being who ever lived. And if you behold him, you will begin to understand what spiritual Christian humility really is. When you look at verses 5 through 7, what you see is that over the course of Jesus' life, starting at his birth, his whole story was a, a journey of descent into humility. It was a stooping lower and lower and lower at every stage so that he could accomplish this great work of saving us. If you compare it to an elevator ride, he started the journey in the penthouse and ended up in B3. Okay, the, the third sub-basement. That's where he ended up. Look at what it says here. Interesting word. It says that he was God for time immemorial. But he emptied himself. When it says he emptied himself, we have to be very careful how we understand that word. It doesn't mean he lost his divinity. It doesn't mean he ceased to be God when he be, took the form of human being. But what it means is that for the purposes of the mission of saving humanity, he dampened, he forfeited, laid aside, suppressed certain aspects of his divinity. In other words, they were there available to him, and he chose not to avail himself of those things, so that in this lesser, diminished form, he could identify with us, relate to us, bear our full, full guilt on himself, and accomplish God's plan of saving us. Now, that's all very theological. I tried to wrestle through an analogy of what that meant, and it's a, it's a very poor analogy at best. But here's what I came up with. I was thinking about all these beautiful actresses who end up playing roles where they have to play someone who's very much less attractive than they are in real life. I was thinking about Jennifer Aniston in the movie Cake. Or Emma Thompson in Nanny McPhee. I've watched that movie like 80 times with my kids. And and they're like, I cannot believe that's actually her. Brace yourselves. Charlie's Theron in Monster. You got to hand it to Hollywood makeup artists. They can transform a person. Or maybe that's just what they look like when they don't put on makeup. I, I don't know. But the truth is, it takes a certain amount of humility, security, and courage To know that you actually look like the woman on the left, but you will play the woman on the right for a movie. 
Now, you can send me an email later saying, you're so superficial. Both women are beautiful. All right, that, that's fine. Uh, but I'm not talking about inner beauty. I'm talking about the world's external standards of what glamour looks like. Now, part of it is, though we admire the courage to play a role like that, we know it's temporary. We know it's make-believe. That when she comes to walk the red carpet at the Academy Awards, Charlize Theron is not going to walk down the carpet looking like the side on the, the picture on the right. She's going to be out there bedazzled in all her glory wearing an $80 million dress or something. But what if they had to look like that permanently to take the role? See, I think that's a different kind of courage altogether. It's one thing to know you're gorgeous and look less than gorgeous for a movie. It's another to say, I know what I am, but I choose to be seen this way forever. I choose for people to underestimate me, to look down on me, to mock me, to shun me, because I have something more important I'm after than the applause and affections of strangers. My security and my purpose don't rise out of what I look like on the outside, but on what drives my whole life and my being. I think that begins to help us sense what Jesus did when he took on the form of a human being. And pay close attention to the use of that word form. That word form in the Greek is morphe. It it speaks not just to an appearance, but to the essence of something. Just like, like, like I'm not just, I don't just look like a man. I am male. The essence of me is male. All male. Through and through. And it says that for time indefinite going backwards from the very beginning in essence Jesus was always God there was nothing lacking in him compared to the father but then it says something very interesting he voluntarily forfeited that to some degree and he took on the form of what not just a human but the lowest of human forms He took the form, and that again is the same word, the essence of a servant. In other words, this is not just cosplay. He's not putting on a servant costume and pretending to be a servant. But he looked in the mirror and decided that is who he is with respect to other people. That I'm not just the person who voluntarily does kind things for other people, but that is what I am here for. That is who I am. I don't just do acts of service. I am the servant of others. That may look like the same thing on the outside, but they are worlds apart from one another. And I'm telling you that we cannot, if we really want to experience unity in the church, we cannot afford to go through the motions of humility. We can't just say, this is what humble people act like and imitate that behavior. I knew people in college who at church spoke in church voice. Hey, brother. Oh, thank you. Yes. Please, pastor. Oh, go ahead of me. And outside of church, that was not the way they talked. And what I realized was they understood 
how to look humble without becoming humble. It's very easy to do if you don't understand what true humility is. And what Jesus is showing us is true humility does not begin with your mannerisms and your posture and your behavior. It doesn't begin with saying yes when, when you're, you're given an opportunity to serve. It begins with looking in the mirror and deciding, I'm not just going to act like a servant. I'm going to accept the identity of one who puts others above himself. And we have some people in the church who have accepted the identity of a servant and others who have not. That is a formula for division and conflict and disunity in the church. And that's the same in a family or in a business or in any human endeavor. When you have some people who look in the mirror and see themselves as humble and servant to others, and others who don't see themselves that way, who say, no, everybody owes me. Y'all are just background actors in the motion picture of my life. And when you have mixtures of that kind of people in the same place, that group will struggle to experience the kind of unity that God intended for us as human beings. Paul uses an interesting phrase when he says, Jesus was fully God. He had rights to the full access of divine power and authority and beauty and glory and all of it. But he didn't grasp onto it. That word is interesting. You picture a child who's two years old being dropped off at seeds and doesn't want to be there. Grabbing onto mommy's leg. And you're like, seriously, get I got to go. Daddy's got to go. Mommy. And picture that clinging. You can't go. I don't know any of these people. I know you. And they hold on to that leg because it's what gives them certainty, peace, comfort, security. What it says is when Jesus came to be among us, he released his grip on his right. He didn't cling onto what was rightfully his, but he relinquished it for a purpose. I don't know if you have ever done something magnanimous, generous, just given something very sacrificially, and then, like, hours later, had pangs of regret, like, crud, crud. I remember when I gave some movie tickets away to a friend, and then I, I was just like, oh, but I really wanted to see that movie. And, you, you know, that doesn't mean I didn't give it without joy, but it's that I'm human. And sometimes when I give things up, I wish I didn't have to. I wish I hadn't. You've always seen it with little kids. Share your toy. Here. And you watch the kid who just gave up the toy, watching the, the kid who's got the toy, having so much fun. You're like, oh, I hope you choke on that ball. Like, I gave it to you, but oh, it's mine. I don't know why I have to share it with you. And there's that feeling of like, even when we give up, we sometimes wish we could still hold on. Jesus released his grip on his right to be just like God. And I wonder how many times in his earthly life he had pangs of regret. He was tempted to go, I really wish, oh, if I could just... I think about especially one occasion 
when he was hanging on the cross. And the onlookers and his enemies were just giving him so much grief. Listen to these words. I have a hard time reading this. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. I don't know what that would have been like. Knowing that your suffering for those very people. And they are mocking you. And you know in a moment you could change your mind and silence their mocking and vindicate yourself. I picture a husband who hears the whines, the longings of his children, his wife, doesn't make enough money in his first job, so he takes a second job in secret. He works through the night when they're sleeping. He is so tired. And in the morning, though he has done it all for them, he hears them say, why is dad such a dead guy? Why, why is he no fun? All the other dads have so much energy. They goof around. Why is our dad such a putz? Imagine what it's like to sacrifice everything for people and be accused and diminished and mocked by those very people. Don't just think about Jesus' situation. Think about your own. Think about how it feels when you're underestimated, devalued, overlooked, unthanked. When your kind gesture is just ignored. Not even a thank you. No acknowledgement at all. And think about what that does to your heart. It's the last time I do that for you, that's for sure. When the Jewish leaders came to the garden to arrest Jesus, Peter drew a sword from his belt. Good old Peter. Ready, fire, aim. That's Peter. Drew a sword. And he started swinging because, you know, Peter's a fisherman, not a soldier. And he swung and he... He must have been aiming for something else, but he happened to cut the ear of one of the high priest's servants. The guy's screaming like a stuck pig. And Jesus goes, stop! And here is Jesus' surprising response to Peter's action. Dude, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels 
But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say, it must happen this way? He says, Peter, do you really think that right now I require the protection of your fisherman's swordsmanship? You swing for the guy's neck and cut his ear. You really think you're the difference between me and death? You don't understand. God's work will not unfold this way. Now listen, had I been in Peter's shoes, I think I would have done the exact same thing. If I saw a bunch of goons coming and I knew there was a bad arrest, it was unjust, I would have drawn my sword too. Wouldn't you? Be with me a little in the room. Show me a ra- Raise your hand. Would you have drawn your sword? Look at all these pacifists now. I'm a lover. Now. Come on. Come on. You would have drawn your sword. I know it because every time we're wronged, we draw our swords. I've yet to have a phone call from someone at this church who says, Pastor Dave, I've been really screwed over, wronged. These people are betraying me. Help me know how better to swallow the offense. Teach me. How, how, do, I, how do I be more gracious? I never get that. I wish, but it has yet to happen in 20 years. So those who wouldn't raise their swords, seriously get over yourself. You would raise your sword. You do every time, even if you don't show it out loud, in your heart you are swinging it like Conan the Barbarian. Twelve legions is more than 72,000 angelic warriors at his disposal in an instant. Think about what a spectacle that would be just by itself before they even start to fight. Look at him. He, could, he says he's the son of God. He can't even save himself. And all of a sudden, the vast array of the heavenly host, gleaming with light. I don't even know if they would have swords. I, think, I like to picture them with blasters. Jesus had infinite power at his disposal. But he grasped on to the mission God gave him. Peter grasped onto the hilt of a sword. Jesus grasped onto his mission. I wonder, what do you grasp onto when you're feeling diminished, attacked, overlooked? What do you grasp onto, cling to, when you're the victim of miscarriage of justice? How was Jesus able to do that? How does he take in stride what is such a great offense to anybody else? You know, it's amazing that at every turn in this passage, if we really look at it, we see different facets of the humility of Jesus. I don't understand how it is possible that we learn the most about humility from the greatest being in the universe. Doesn't it seem counterintuitive to you that if you want to learn humility, you go to the most awesome being there is. It says that he was found in human form. Now, this time, the word English word form translates the Greek word schema, which isn't about essence, but appearance. It says not only did he take on the essence or identity of the lowest form of humanity, but in his appearance, he was totally human. 
if we read between the lines, what it says is he was totally average, pedestrian. You would not remember him if you walked past him on the street. Have you ever looked in the mirror and just not liked what you saw looking back? Interact with me a little. I can't be the only one who does not like what he sees in the mirror. Look, I can accept this is my lot in life. I've made my peace with it. God gave me a wonderful wife so that I would not be depressed all day long. But the truth is, if I'm being really honest with you, many days I, I look at the mirror and I just go, I look at a guy like Chris Hemsworth who can play convincingly a Norse god in the movies. I just think, God, you know, were you on the phone when you were making me? What? Did you try at all? What? How, how does that happen? That and then, the, and I just kind of start to go. Do you ever feel like me? Encourage me a little. I'm feeling so insecure right now. Yeah. You guys are just all demigods, huh? You're so satisfied with yourselves. Listen, when I see this guy, I think to myself. If I had the power to determine my own physical appearance, my own form, I would end up looking closer to that than this. That's just the honest truth of it. If I had the choice to spend my earthly life looking like that or looking like this, it is to me a no-brainer. And it, it, it indicts me at a, at a certain level, doesn't it? Because then when I read Isaiah 53, 2, in being, listen to what it says, Isaiah 53, what, where, is, where did it go? Here's what it says. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. There was only one being in the history of humanity who ever got to decide before he was born what he's going to look like. Think about this. All the rest of us popped out of a birth canal and were like, ah, oh, dang. Lost life's lottery. One being got to decide what he would look like. And when I see what he decided, it humbles me. Because the prophet Isaiah, as he recalls it, says in his prophecy, what he saw is, I saw the Savior. Meh. I'm telling you right now, he's not much to look at. When I describe God himself as a human being, it isn't at all what you're, no, get, get the Chris Hemsworth picture out of your head. It isn't what you're thinking. There was nothing in him that would attract our eyes or our hearts to his outward appearance or power. Whenever I think about this aspect of Jesus' character, it really exposes something in me. Because even knowing this, I find my flesh is so weak, I would still rather look different than I look now. If this is what our God is like, what should our hearts be like? If this is what he chooses, 
as if to say, I do not value external displays of beauty and power. That is not what I admire and value. Didn't we just learn that through the children's video that when they were selecting the next king of Israel, he said very plainly, God doesn't look at people the way people look at people. And yet knowing all this, why do I still long for and yearn for the very things which my Savior doesn't value? And so what Paul is saying is learn from him. You can be so impressive in the externals of being a human being and be found so wanting in the eyes of God. If you want to aspire to anything, aspire to be more like Jesus and be the kind of person he values. Be more like him because that is what real beauty and real power look like in this universe. You know, it says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient. I think there's a, a, um, a bias in, the, in Christian life to put too much emphasis on acts of service. We give frequent announcements about opportunities to serve, to come to this or to go to that and help and lend a hand and all of this. Those are good things. But I think underlying those opportunities to serve is this idea that if I do the acts of a servant enough times, I will develop the heart of a servant. Go through the motions and the heart will follow. And sometimes that's a little bit true. But I think Jesus taught us a different way. That before he did anything physical in obedience or humility, he gazed at himself and made a decision that he would accept the identity of one who is humble and low. In other words, the most enduring acts of service rise out of a heart that is truly humble from the start. If you're struggling with servanthood, the answer isn't necessarily to volunteer more but to meditate more, to reflect on who you think you are and who God says you are. Do you have the courage to ask the people closest to you, hey, do you think that I think too highly of myself? How many of you be willing to ask that question to the people closest to you this week? When I was in the Aero Leadership Program, they gave us a few exercises like that. And I'm like, oh, I'm totally secure, whatever, I'll do it. Uh, let me tell you, I tried a couple of those exercises. I almost started drinking heavily. It was bad. I realized how little real self-awareness I had. And I think that's true of most of us. I bet you the way you see yourself is really different than the way the majority of people around you see you. That should be a sobering statement for anyone who's paying attention. That the way you think you look to others is probably not close to the way you actually look to others. I'm on my third teenager now. And each one of them went through a phase where <laughs> I could see it when, it when that age hit. They think they are so cool right now. Don't touch them. They might explode there. They're just oozing coolness. And I could picture it in their mind. They're like, oh, my God, I am so, I got to walk close, carefully, like I'm carrying nitroglycerin because I am so cool. 
And I let them have their day because I love them. But behind closed doors, me and Gina would... <laughs> did, did, you, did you see him sitting there? <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, the way you see yourself is very different than the way most people see you. If you don't learn humility, you will eventually learn humiliation. With Jesus, he began with a humble spirit. And he did things that were humble. Obedience arises from an identity of humility. And then he says we are to follow him. In a world populated by porcupines, Jesus says, you can't be a balloon. You've got to be a pincushion. You've got to be willing as a Christ follower to bear an offense, to shake it off, to absorb the pain and the indignity. Because that's what he would do. And he's calling others to be like him. This world is so full of foul deeds that if every bad deed is returned with another bad deed, this world will be a place we could not bear to live. The only people who make this world bearable are the ones who absorb an offense and do not repay evil with evil. And Jesus says he set the example, but he calls us to follow him. I've got to land this plane, so I'm going to draw this message to a close. And uh, I want to look at these last three verses. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, Jesus spent his whole life stooping lower and lower and lower. We spend our whole lives trying to climb higher and higher and higher while our Savior and King stoops lower and lower and lower. But even the humble King is still a King. And what God declares is that this king who kept stooping lower and lower will one day be raised up. That there will come a day where every creature that was ever created, every human being that was ever born, regardless of what they believed about Jesus, even the angelic beings and the ones under the earth, those who have fallen, those who have died and been buried, every creature ever created, will one day in unison get on their knees before Jesus, bow, and together with their own mouths will confess, truly, Jesus Christ is Lord. The sobering fact is that not everyone will be on the right side of that confession. It's sort of like filling in the right answers after your test was graded makes you feel a little better, but it makes no difference. One day, a good number of those who make that confession will make it 
with joy and celebration and vindication in their hearts. All those years spent swallowing the offense, putting others first, stooping myself lower and lower, hating what it felt like, watching others get away with murder, trusting one day that Jesus would have his justice, that one day Jesus would have his day, would settle the scores and call in the accounts. I waited for that day, but man, it was hard. But on that day, for some who make the confession, it will be worth it. Because that day, as Jesus is lifted, it will also be the day of their vindication. But others on that day will speak the words, but even as they say them, it will be in a spirit of stunned realization. That they will now know the truth but it can no longer set them free. Every day, Jesus with open arms casts his invitation to everyone. You can be on the right side of that confession one day, but you've got to accept that invitation while you're on earth. Is there a reason to put it off? For those who have already accepted that invitation, I acknowledge with you that it is not an easy life to take Jesus' path of humility. At times, it's a degrading life, a very costly life. One day, you and I will be vindicated along with Jesus. Fix your eyes on that day and press on. close with this passage. The words Jesus spoke on the night before his crucifixion when sharing a meal, a final meal with his closest friends. He surprised them all by kneeling before each one to lovingly wash their feet. And it says that when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes return to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you, Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. May Jesus give us the power to heed this great invitation not to spend our lives clawing for a better position and and clawing our way up the ladder, but to join him in this journey of descent into humility so that one day when we've walked all the way to the bottom, God himself will lift us up and he will vindicate us. And we will rejoice because we did not take heaven here on earth, but we waited and were justified.
I want to ask you to join me in prayer. Just bow with me for a minute. If you struggle with humility, or if you're stuck in a place where it's hard to think about lowering yourself because everyone around you has been doing that all your life, and you're desperate for someone to pick you up. Even in your situation, I tell you, the way forward cannot be by elevating yourself. Your ability to lift yourself up is so weak compared to God's ability to do that. And he promises that those who raise themselves up, he will bring low. But those who lower themselves, he will raise. In this moment, don't look inward at your own heart, but I invite you to meditate on the character of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's be done with role-playing and mimicking the behavior of humility. And let's ask Him to shape in us a real heart that is humble. A heart like His. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.